Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your Keepers of Mysteries. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We are here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I am Keeper Jen, with me our Keeper Bob. Hello, hello. And our newest substitute Keeper, Eric. Hey, everybody. Unfortunately, Mark is unable to be with us for this show. His last phone message was a little hard to understand. Something about a giant red sun and the likelihood of being eaten by a grew. Who knows? It must have been dark there. <laughs> for those of you who don't know Judge Eric, Eric Young is a longtime gamer. And last I knew he was working on an adventure for Weird Frontiers. But Eric, say hi. Tell us a little more about yourself. Hi, everybody. I'm glad I could be here. First of all, let me compliment you guys on that outstanding John Vance interview. That was just phenomenal. That was a great thing. And the sucking up will get you everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I've been basically doing some stuff for the DCC community over the last few years, especially with the pandemic. It just kind of everything fell in perfectly for me to be able to do some stuff. So I've gone from basically being, I should help out with the community to being one of the three people who's helping to organize the Gong Farmers Almanac which has just been a trip of a good time, meeting so many great people. And listening to so many people go, you're right. You just put that into the Gong Farmer's Almanac. Go for it. Go for it. Like, are you pretty sure it get in? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. That is so awesome. <laughs> it's just been great for that. So and now people are shoveling content at you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Myself included. Uh, almost as if they were Gong Farmers. <laughs> yep. Yep. So it's just been a fascinating thing. Right now, um, deep into the editing stage at this point. And it's just been a big, giant, fun learning curve, meeting so many great people. So people going, yeah, I'll help out, whatever I can do. It's just been great. And also um, the other thing that's keeping me busy DCC-wise is at Games Plus, they've revived the in-person gaming group there. Awesome. After they hiatus, so we've been doing some great Mutant Crawl Classic stuff, running through that. Games Plus is where gamers go when they die. It's a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just so wonderful to have that as my FLGS. But that's what I've been basically keeping busy with is taking care of that. Haven't been doing as much gaming as I have, family stuff, things like that. But it's just great to be able to be involved and help out with such an awesome community. Tell us a little bit about Escape from the Murder Castle. I've seen you running that quite a bit recently. Yeah, basically, um, I'm from Chicago and... Escape from Murder Castle is a adventure I'm in the middle of playtesting and revising for Weird Frontiers. Wait, wait, 1870s through 90s in Chicago is a fascinating time. You got the fire, the beer wars, 
And at that time, also H.H. Holmes was roaming around. So I used him as an inspiration for an adventure I was kicking around writing. And then somebody brought up, hey, Brandon LaSalle, here's H.H. Holmes. You should write something about that. And I'm like, there is no way I'm going to try and compete with the genius that is Brandon LaSalle and then read something. So I sat down, got inspired and wrote out a little adventure where you're trying to escape from the very home that H.H. Holmes created. And that guy was one weird dude. <laughs> a truly chilling. So it works perfectly for a, like an urban setting for Weird Frontiers. Now, is that a funnel? Yes, it's funnel. Ooh. Oh, that'll be fun. All right. Now that you've uh, had a glimpse into the mind of Eric, it might not surprise you that Judge Eric has chosen a tale of Robert E. Howard for this show's appendix end piece. We're going to be looking at The Hills of the Dead, which was within the savage tales of Solomon Cain. Bob, tell us a little about that one. Indeed it was. A predecessor to Howard's Conan the Barbarian, Solomon Cain is a somber-looking Puritan who wanders the world with no apparent goal other than to vanquish evil in all of its forms. Returning to Africa, Solomon Cain's old friend Nalonga, the witch doctor from Red Shadows, gives the Puritan a magic wooden staff, the Staff of Solomon, which will protect him in his travels. Cain enters the jungle and finds a city of vampires. With his faith in God, the magic of Nalonga, and his wits, Cain must destroy them all. And this is a sequel to the first Solomon Cain story ever published, Red Shadows. Wow. I really enjoyed this, and I actually took in the entire collection. But Eric, this was your choice. What are your thoughts? Basically, it was a thing I was looking through it. It does look like an interesting story. And what I loved about it is the fact that it took the whole wandering adventurer trope and kind of put it on its head. Every time you ever read the story, it's like the main adventurer is running from his life to get away from something at the start of an adventure. He's being chased by bandits, something like that. Whereas this one, Solomon Cain always being drawn towards something. He's not sure what, but he knows that it's his place to keep wandering the earth, looking forward, not looking over his shoulder. Whatever's in front of him, I thought that was just a fantastic thing. Yeah, there's actually a moment in the story where he talks about the feeling of being drawn, but he doesn't know by what. Yeah, and I also like the fact that in this one, unlike a lot of the other adventurers like Burroughs and things like that, Solomon Kane is a white man in Africa, and he is definitely out of place. This is not his world. This is not <laughs> his time. He is the one who is the newbie learning everything. He might be the European, but he definitely is not the guy who has all the answers. Yeah, you actually touched on something that I really liked in the story. Howard talks about how Nalonga is speaking kind of a common pidgin language understood by both sides, right? The Europeans and the Africans. Burroughs would have just talked about how they barely understood English because they were savages, because Burroughs really didn't handle things of that nature well. Howard puts in kind of that sly point of neither one of these groups are speaking their own language. They're speaking a combination of both, and it gives credit to the intelligence of both, which for the period is very refreshing. And when Nalonga speaks in that pidgin English, 
Howard also talks about him lowering himself to do so, lowering his pride to use this language. Yes. So, Eric, I think you've nailed that one on the head about Cain. He's not the European conqueror that so many had wanted to be out there. He's more of the explorer who's really trying to understand things. They talk about the river dialect when they both Mm -hmm. drop into an African language to speak because they both know it. That was really refreshing for a story this old. Yeah, the other thing I love is the fact that unlike a lot of things, Nalanga was not the, here's Kane at the top and here's Nalanga beneath him. Nalanga is truly the wise man in the story. He is the one who knows it. He's the one who has been there, done that. Basically, it reminded me a lot of that 80s movie Dragon Slayer. Okay. Where you had Richardson being the elder guy trying to explain to the younger guy, and you have that idea of he knows he's not physically capable of making this journey, so he has the other guy make the journey for him. Well, and to be fair, I think this story is, in a lot of ways, more of a Nalonga story than a Solomon Kane story. Solomon Kane is there so that Nalonga can survive long enough to defeat the vampires. Sorry about spoiling a 91-year-old story. But but Nalonga really is the hero in the story. He's the one that pulls everything off. Solomon Kane is his Robin. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, his job is to run interference so Nalonga can do his thing. Absolutely right. His job is to be the big hero only instead of with sword, he's doing it with a musket. And the staff of Solomon, which is a little bit meta for Solomon to be holding it. But what you're telling me is that Kane is the plot device. That hurts a little. <laughs> Solomon Kane's Solomon Kane is the plot device. <laughs> Yo. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm just going to move right back on to uh, the, the entirety of this book. The foreword was from H.P. Lovecraft, and it was really interesting to read something from Lovecraft that waxed poetical about somebody else's writing. Oh, he was, he and Howard were very good friends. And it was uh, Robert Irvin. Howard, originally a bookkeeper, but he somehow managed to crank out all of these short stories published as serials. I mean, everything out there came out before he hit age of 30, which is when he ended up taking his own life. Yeah, that was was, uh, uh, definitely a, a loss. Yes, it was. The stuff that he produced, just so many people's first encounters with the sword and sorcery stuff where the Conan short stories. Yeah. Well, and that's the origin of the term, right? Sword and sorcery was coined to describe the Conan stories of Howard. Yeah. By Liber. Yes, by Liber at the request of Michael Moorcock. Wow. That's a <laughs> it just keeps swinging whole, on, right? <laughs> with an with a foreword by HP Lovecraft. This is truly right. a kind of shows you the fact that the writing community back then was still very much a community of Oh, the writers. It, it was insular, yeah. I mean, as we know from all the Conan novels, Howard's descriptions of battle and gore are just unsurpassed. But what really, really struck me about this collection was the vocabulary used. Because reading one of the Conan stories earlier for this show, I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, it's not bad. I don't know that I would write home about it. But there's a chapter even in this story, The Hills of the Dead, called Palaver Set. Wow, I haven't had to look up palaver for a few years. Um, it's just, you know, a conversation between people, but or discussion, if you will. But palaver is, was it really that common back then to be using it? Palaver was, was very common at the time. 
with it. Okay. So I, I guess it doesn't hold up well after 80 years or something. But that, that <laughs> sort, of, sort of shows that that level of vocabulary is sort of lost with a lot of modern authors. You know, we discussed that with John Vance, right? How language yep. is sort of faded and dumbed down over time. We had, we had other phrases in the course of combat. We had phrases like swept nothingness and clutched emptiness and just so evocative and as opposed to missed yeah exactly yeah yeah i think the one that i had fun with of this one is the word by and by as one word right i had to read it like three times be in by what is be in by is that a monster is that like a bayaki from lovecraft what's a be in by is it an african term (laughs) (laughs) now i want to start a beyond by yeah, that's what it's like. Oh, by and by. Okay, it's the pigeon language. I went back and when I rewrite it, it's like, oh, the pigeon language. Now it makes sense. Right. Now it makes sense. So, which is that's the other thing I do love about the story is you can reread it and pick up so much new stuff that you missed the first time. That just kind of like, oh, just a couple of throwaway lines in there that just like, wow, now that's cool. Yeah. Now that's the richness of a story. And when the undead do rise and the hills, quote unquote, were giving up their dead. I thought, oh, great, zombies. That's what happens. The fact that they were vampires and not zombies blew my mind. Yeah. Africa really likes their vampires. They really do. That's okay. Which is which is kind of interesting. When, when I was reading this from a modern perspective, I really got to wondering how much of that was Howard's imagination and how much might have been his knowledge of African cultures, because there's a lot of different types of vampires in African cultures. And uh, ah. I like to think that that yeah. he should get credit for knowing, but it's it's hard to tell. Yeah. The other thing I loved about this story is, again, how Nalanga, his description of magic and his how old he is, is so wonderfully spot on the whole idea of DCC, where he says, how do I explain to you in a word? what has taken me a lifetime to master. That whole idea that magic does make non-magic users a little wary and a little creeped out by it because it's something that is so specialized that you just don't truck with magic unless you're fully committed to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, That uh, that's a really good way to put it. It's almost like the first time wizard trying to meet up with that patron and trying to make that decision of, do I really want to get into this? Yeah, just that. And the fact that Pete demonstrates the fact that just because it's African and not Puritan, Kane kind of has the fact that not all magic is this black evil magic, that you can have magic that doesn't quite fit into his worldview. And he yeah. kind of comes back and doesn't outrightly reject it because it's not his. Yeah, but you know, you also also note at one point he is asking Nalanga, "Are you Nalanga? You're Satan?" And because to him, all <laughs> magic is of Satan, but he admits that sometimes it takes darkness to fight darkness. So he is certainly not wholly on board with the magic that is going on around him because it is ungodly and differs from him. But he's not above using it to wipe out a city of vampires. Yeah, that qualm of his was especially when Nalanga piggybacked with the other guy from the village kind of like i am possessing projection. a young guy don't mind me yeah yeah yeah, with, yeah. With crash. Don't mind. His, yeah. his high thin voice coming from the big strapping lad and yeah th- this is the work of the devil kane says and then i like how at the end he goes if this was evil i wouldn't give it back but i'm <laughs> nalanga not 
Cran. And he basically goes back to his own body because he realized the fact that, yeah, this is just a loner. As cool as it is, I am Nalanga. I am not Cran. Cran deserves his own life. Yeah. yeah. Which proves he's not evil, right? Yeah. Well, now just think about this for a minute, right? So Solomon Kane, the his, the first story, Red Shadows, appeared in Weird Tales in 1928. And as long as Howard was alive, Solomon Kane exclusively appeared in Weird Tales. There's a couple things after. But this story is from 1930 the year that he died. And so Solomon Kane as a character, right? I mean, Howard died in 1930. So we had two years worth of stories and literally, you know, 91 years later, we're talking about this story and hell we're, we're coming up on a hundred years of Solomon Kane pretty soon. And what the movie was 10 years ago, maybe. So the the character is, the character is still very beloved and, and very, very popular. Yeah. And in one of the stories uh, in this collection, I believe it was from Skulls in the Stars, there was a point made where the brown people of Atlantis still held black slaves. And there was somewhat of an uprising with that. And there was the desire for freedom and equality between both races and I think I might even go out on a limb and say that this collection is probably the most um, aware of all of the appendix and novels I've read with the quote unquote other people that take such a large part in it and the issues of slavery and everything. Well, yeah, but keep in mind I mean, that when, when, uh, no, no, no. What, what I'm saying is that it might be the least bad. No, but what I'm saying is if you, if you look in this particular story, right. And he talks about the facial structure of the girl that he comes across and she is obviously far more advanced because she has a narrow nose and her skin is lighter. You know, it's Brown, not Ebony. There's, there's well, still from stuff King's there. point of view, yeah, but Howard wrote it, you know, at the end but, of the day, Howard wrote it. So, yeah. so it, it, it is, I'm just, I'm just, it's a little I, bit I more give... progressive. It's certainly more progressive yeah. than Lovecraft. Right. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. And oh my God, Burroughs. Yeah. And Burroughs <laughs> where my, where, where my favorite line from you about Burroughs is I can teach myself to read because I'm white. Right. <laughs> that was like, yeah, yeah, I could no. teach myself to read and speak English. Yeah, yeah, that was a uh, okay. So, so I'm I'm trying to put good where there might not. Be. Well, I don't he, think he's I don't better. think hey, you know, it's humanity. I, yeah. I, think, I think Howard <laughs> truly, you know, people try and and forgive Lovecraft as a man of his time, and people of his time went, "Ye gads, you're racist." Howard, on the other hand, really was more of a man of his time. He didn't have any particular animus towards anyone, but his writing shows the shows the uh, particular beliefs of the time. Okay, so getting back to this story Mm -hmm. then, I think the last thought I've got before we move on to the things to stat, which I know are going to dovetail into this, it really says something that the girl was more afraid of the hills and the vampires than she was of the lion that was chasing her. Right. So about them, our hills, Bob. Uh, I know you got some stuff to oh stat. Oh, God. Yeah. So, so first of all, like I was mentioning, African vampires, right? Because Africa loves vampires. And just having recently done vampires for Crypt of the Devil Lich, like, you know, vampires, freed vampires, <laughs> vampire lords, this entire thing. I'm looking at this, and there's so many different types of vampires in African folklore. In West Africa, the Ashanti people have these tree-dwelling iron tooth things called Asanbosom. And uh, those are their vampires. The UA people tell of the Adze, and the Adze 
can take the form of fireflies. It's the first time I've ever seen fireflies like as a subject of menace. Right? Bad. They hunt yeah. children, specifically hunt children. That ain't right. <laughs> when uh, when you that's a when you go down one. to South Africa and the Eastern Cape, there's legends of the Imkundulu. And they take the form of large taloned birds, and they also can cause thunder and lightning. So they're vampires that can turn into birds and bring storms. The Batsilio people in Madagascar have the Ramanga, which is a living vampire. They're not undead. They're living creatures Mm -hmm. that drink the blood and eat the nail clippings of nobles. I've not yet figured out the... uh, (laughs) That that's a, that's an undead, not undead fetish that I had not come across before. Maybe I you know, leave that one aside, but it adds a little bit of creepy from another culture into things. I mean, if you don't yeah. stat it, someone else is gonna. <laughs> yeah, toenail clipping. So I don't know, but there's that right off the bat. No longer, obviously, he is the local cultural equivalent of a wizard. I mean, he can cast sleep. He can cast wizard staff and other things. There are spells that he uses that while the manifestations might not be familiar in DCC, the spells themselves are very familiar in DCC, which I thought was a lot of fun. Well, he's obviously a shaman then, right? Uh, no, of no, sorts? he is a fetish of man. Sorts? Remember, shaman is a cultural term, okay. right? Yeah. Fetishman. Okay, that makes sense. I thought that maybe uh, write up a Puritan witch hunter as a class. That run run in. something in more of a, a 15 through 1700s age of exploration. Colonial crawl classics. Someone should write it. <laughs> and uh, you could do the entire story essentially as a kind of brief hex crawl. You could just take this entire story and stat it. There's not yeah. a whole lot there. The story is rich, but there's not a lot of locations. There's not a lot of monsters. It's very straightforward. That's what I've got. Eric? What I thought is the longest voodoo stave. The staff itself, the fact that the, the magics on that were so old, it could be a Bane staff against vampires. It had special powers. It says you lay it down in a doorway and vampires cannot enter. Mm-hmm. Oh. And that just the residue of the staff itself would keep vampires away while Cran and Xana were sleeping. It would keep them away because of the residue of it itself. Just the powerfulness of that. Then that the, at the end, when like you said, brought forth the birds to that are that are. <laughs> I love the fact that they use vultures, which are drawn to dead things to kill the vampires. It's like right. What a brilliant solution to a problem. <laughs> Just that spell itself, to, 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 and that could be altered to be any sort of carrion crawl, whatever the carrion eaters are. That's how the zombie would apocalypse a- would end in Florida. <laughs> then wouldn't you have zombie birds? No, they're just eating it. Yeah. Ew. Well, obviously the vultures are immune to the undead. They're immune to botulism. So obviously they can eat the, whatever that is, does not affect them. Although zombie birds would be a cool thing to stand as well now. (laughs) The other thing, one of those throwaway things that would just in a line early in the story when he first goes out into the brush, the line is just a great dark snake rose and slid away into the grass, moving so quickly that Cain was unable to decide its nature. But it had a weird human-like suggestion to it. Just this thing that I picked up the second time through. It's like, wait, now that needs to be statted. See, and I was thinking that was one of the vampires. But I couldn't find an African vampire that could change into a snake, I looked. Yeah, instead of it being a nog, it's almost like it's pure snake with just a couple of human-like features to it. Instead of having the everything to it, I think it would just be a wonderful thing to put out there. And it's just such a wonderful little throwaway line because you think it's going to come back later. And no, it's just something else that's creepy out there that wants to kill you in Africa. 
Yeah, you're right. That was one of the first paragraphs in chapter one, titled Voodoo, of course. Uh, that was the first note that I actually had scribbled down here. It was that snake. Yep. Yeah, hmm. it very evocative. That's what I got. What about you, Jen? What do you have? Um, I'm going to circle back to your vultures. Later in the Savage Tales, in the story Wings in the Night, these vultures are actually described as winged devils or harpies. <laughs> so that, that could add even further layers. Maybe maybe there's just a class of them and they have you know, variations. I mean, you could set up Cain, obviously. Whether or not you have a class for him, you could create him as maybe an NPC or something. Nalongo's effects, not just the staff, but he wore this necklace made of human finger bones. And what and why? And I mean, the imagery of that actually stopped me for a full two minutes as my brain just went off on its own little trails. <laughs> so... Yeah, if I were to write that up, I'd probably be a thousand words in. The astral projection-like spell that Nalonga uses, I have to wonder if that's a patron spell from the Black God, or if it's something more along the lines of a class ability. Hmm. So, hmm. you know, if you're statting him up. And Bob, you mentioned the hex crawl aspect of this place. The jungle itself seemed to be an entity to Kane when he was talking about feeling imprisoned in the dank, rank venom of the thick jungle. Yeah. Great prose. <laughs> and, and then you have the stone city as a locale where their final destination in this particular story. And I just, I kept seeing like the equivalent of that stone facade that rises in the jungle cruise. Of all things. <laughs> Fun movie, by the but way. Yeah, so the, the Stone City. Well, then if you want to talk about the, the Stone City and Nolongo's effects, why don't we move over to props and audio? Because I'm not sure how I would feel about getting slash making a necklace made of finger bones, Bob. <laughs> Chicken thigh bones look remarkably like human fingers. <laughs> uh, yeah, th that's true. Like elongated finger bones even i think part of my brain's problem was that i read human finger bones and i think i left out the word bones <laughs> so i'm just envisioning all of these fingers and and the preservation of those would be even more solomon creepy, kane right? flashes into the nom <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i mean you can have a staff of any size or shape to be nalongos and uh for audio Seeing as this is Howard, it just seems fitting to throw in the original film score for Conan because it would be perfect for things like the action scenes and the periods of travel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Eric? Of course, with Africa, it's like one of the things I went looking for. Now, granted, I know that your knowledge of African music far eclipses my own. So I'll sit there and. Hey, this is me not adding all of yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the one thing I did find as I went looking, because I didn't want to find like, stereotypical Africa was an album called the African Zulu drummer. And the first thing that drew me to it when I looked at it is the cover of the album itself looks like a DCC cover. Ooh, It's got an African warrior riding a freaking battle cat. Nice. And, yes. I, and I took yes, a look at does. that and listened to that and went, this is good stuff from during the fights and stuff like that. And the travel, you can play it down low. 
And the other thing I thought for sound on this one was actually during the fight, since these things are silent, that would have to be something that would have to be run at an in-person game. Silence during the combat. We're so used to the DM shout, you've got this combat, you've yeah. got this. Just point at them, roll the die, and show them what their damage Ooh. is. Just to creep them out. And for, for the GMs who are so used to storytelling, suddenly dead silence to mimic the silence of the attacks. Oh, I, I like I that. Dig I that. like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing I thought of for props would be if you have the style and you have the talent, like a Troy Tucker, which I don't, is create like <laughs> cave wall paintings of the, uh, if you're going to turn this in like a hex crawl, so that they don't necessarily have to have somebody explain what the staff is, have them look at pictures to figure out. Here, here's this village, then the vampires move in, and there's somebody with the staff that somehow manages to drive them away. So mm-hmm. they understand that the staff is important, to tell a story using a mural in, the st- in that ancient style, because they bring up the fact that these things are older than old. Oh, yeah, that's player handouts for sure. Yeah, that's that's I like that idea a lot. I know we've, we've kind of focused uh, on the staff, right? And I got to mm-hmm. thinking that in a lot of tourist locations that feature African craftsmen, you will generally see at least one carver who is carving, you know, stone figures and wooden figures, as well as yeah. a various number of African style walking sticks and canes and things of that nature. So I immediately leapt to that because authentic artists support your authentic artists. <laughs> then I, I started thinking about maybe adding some exotic scented incense, something kind of thick and heavy to change the whole feel in the play area, right? To, to give it that, that different environment, you know, without setting off a smoke detector or anything, but not like sandalwood or dragonwood, none, none of the common stuff, but maybe something kind of thick and cloying because that, that kind of a little floral, that, yeah. that sort of, that sort of scent kind of, it not only does it give you that outdoor environmental feel, but if it's kind of thick and heavy, it gives a feeling of humidity without humidity. Of course, here in Florida, we just have humidity. We don't <laughs> yeah. need to worry about it. But you know, if you're in Arizona, this might really help you. That's great. It also gives that idea of the heaviness of the jungle closing in on yeah. you. Yeah. Like that, that scent is everywhere. You need like a mixture of some weird floral scent and some moss and a lot of wet dirt. And <laughs> it might not be pretty. Well, it doesn't have to be pretty, right? Your family might not love you afterwards yeah. if it's in your house. And in <laughs> a lot of ways, props and audio almost blended together for me on this one, right? Where Eric was talking about running in silence, I think this is a case where background music can be brought to the foreground mm-hmm. at portions of the adventure. Mm-hmm. Don't don't be afraid to boost volume for tension. If you have like some discordant, arrhythmic African drumming going on during the combat, bring it up a little bit. There was a wonderful production. I think it was called The Zoo. And I saw it a lot longer ago than I like to, to admit. And in the entire pre-show, before the play began, they were playing jungle sounds and animal cries at a fairly high volume, and it made the audience tense. So that sort of thing can really pull people out of their comfort zones and very rapidly kind of get them on edge for an adventure like that. Oh man, you could even blend the ideas that you and Eric had and boost that volume and stop talking. 
or take it even one step further, boost that volume as you're beginning the combat and as the players are describing what they're doing. And then when you get to the vampires, cut the volume to silence and then bring it back. You could do a lot with it. I, I really, I dig, dig Eric's idea of silence. your FLGS might hate you. Yeah, this is probably but, best. Yeah. Well, yeah, when you bust out the incense, <laughs> you're probably going to get thrown out. So really, this is more for a home game. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of them are a strict no flame inside the store kind yeah, of place. For good reason. And we respect that. Um, and there's, you know, Eric, Eric mentions, of course, music. And there is so much wonderful, authentic African tribal music that you can use to set the tone. There's a series of CDs like Uganda and other African nations, Feasts of the Savannah. There's uh, Rhythms of Life, Songs of Wisdom, Akan music from Ghana, traditional songs and dances from Africa, Ohio. Let's see other, other things that are maybe not wholly traditional, but are certainly African. There's a giant compilation album called Mega Africa, which I absolutely love. Oh, I have that. We it, have it, almost it's a all four of CD these. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Jen and I have a lot of Africa. Yeah, like I said, their knowledge of African music is just impressive. It's a passion. <laughs> yes, it is. Sabar Woloff dance drumming of Senegal. There's master drummer from Ghana, music tradition of Malawi, which also has music from a number of different tribes. There is so much out there and it can be a little, some of the stuff can be a little hard to, to source. You can, you can find it on Amazon. Some of it is, is very expensive. Some of it is very inexpensive. Which means you might have a hit or miss on Spotify. There's a lot of this isn't going to be on Spotify, but yeah. A lot of the, even though some of the more expensive albums, because when I was sourcing some of the African music in our collection, there were CDs that I spent 120 bucks on. Tell it's been a few years. I can live now. <laughs> um, but that's because I wanted the physical CDs. I wanted CD quality. Some of those same CDs you can stream at like 256 off of Amazon streaming music. And so you can get it more inexpensively if you just want digital. But there's a lot. Emphasis we'll have a lot on authentic. Yeah, we'll we'll have probably a lot more links than I've mentioned because we have we have quite the library, which will be awesome because African music should be listened to. Now it's half the fun of this. I spent yeah. I spent time reading the story and then spent like two days just listening to African music because mm-hmm. it is so wonderful. It. And and that's not even bringing up like Miriam McKeba. Yeah, and, that that avoids you know more the yeah. the more recent the the more recent pieces, more poppy yeah. stuff. And yeah. I think that. The music is so important in this particular case, if you're running an adventure like this, to differentiate this from standard fantasy, right? You're not wandering around in fantasy medieval Europe, which is, you know, the default setting for almost everything other than, say, like the Shutter Mountains or the Purple Planet. You're you're someplace else. You are on the dark continent. You're in Africa. (laughs) <laughs> and that music really, I think, helps the players make the transition to the new location. Well, um, that said, I think jumping into our DCC inspirations and reskins with things that are already out there that you could use to essentially run this story as an adventure. I would not be surprised at all if there are some overlaps between Bob and I. But after recently speaking with Ed Stanek mm-hmm. of Rarian Games, Kingdoms of Africa, it is a setting source book, kind of ties in with his Pax Luxque, and there hasn't been as much colonization of the African kingdoms. 
And there's a really stellar shaman class in there that uh, like every level he gains another essentially chance to invoke a new patron. It's almost like steps of invoke patron spells, but for different patrons. And yeah, there's so much flavor in there. Plus it's co-written and illustrated by people who live in Nigeria, I believe. Mm -hmm. I would also throw in the last will and testament of Obadiah Falkner. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, this is set for, you know, something possibly more in a Weird Frontiers uh, universe, but the use of actual history and dated documents and the religious iconography, you could almost just put Solomon Cain as having hailed from there or as one of the personalities that you meet in the midst of this. Mm-hmm. Mm. maybe throw him in as an NPC who's assisting. You know, when we originally were talking about doing this episode, I had listed Brendan LaSalle's MCC adventure, Seeking the Post-Humans, mm-hmm. because it's a nearly Iron Age versus Bronze Age and the starting tech and everything. And I envision the trek from point A to the ultimate point C, you know, as... Pretty much the same thing. You could just throw the ultimate threat in there, just switch that up to be these weird vampire things or undead something or others. And, you know, I'm going to say it, Transylvanian Adventures. Why Why have we not already said this? Uh, <laughs> I mean, especially with the Puritan Hunter. Fair. And you could so easily just, sidestep that over into hammer horror flicks well and and it has it has rules that sort of fit the period yeah yeah you yeah would be the would be the absolute perfect fit for a solomon kane kind of character well eric you had some pretty cool ideas in here well first of all in full honest disclosure i am a stephen newton fanboy i love everything the guy touches (laughs) so when you brought up last will i immediately went to the haunting of larvik island the fact that on there you have undead that have been there for generations untold and just swap the standard zombie trope out with the silent killing vampires would just be a perfect, would just be a (laughs) perfect blend in. Same thing with the long ago thing, um, frozen in time. As you get Mm. to the lair, have a, have a small group of these ancient zombies be some of the protectors of the lair to throw in there for throw something curveball. Empire of the East would be a nice setting for this. You could just take the whole village and just Ooh. drop it in. Well, instead of being an ancient stone lair, I'm pictured being Levittown. Hmm. Here you have all of these people from our time. So instead of being dressed as these ancient Africans, here's a group of Levittown people wearing their little Hawaiian shirts, their polos, and they're just silent zombie killers. They just come flowing out of this housing development just to make everybody's life miserable. Hawaiian shirted vampires. So yeah, that, that that would be your stone city. Okay. Yeah, that Wait, be, they would look sort of like me in Hawaii because I'm dead white and I'd be wearing a bright shirt. <laughs> it's a good way for me to get killed. Maybe people shouldn't take that particular idea to heart. I might. Get <laughs> okay, don't do it as a larp. Yeah, no guys. larping this. No larping yep. this. At least not while I'm playing. And the other thing I had, Strange Night, the Pint and Pony, the Voodoo Stave could easily replace the ancient alien technology that was underneath the city. Mm. Give them something else yeah, to try. I've not experienced. It is, it is a wonderful adventure from Studio Nine. It is oh, just yeah. a, it's just so much fun. The whole idea is everybody in it 
is either a cursed human who has been shrunk, a gnome, a dwarf, or a halfling. <laughs> and making the thing go outside, okay. it takes place at the Pint and Pony Pub. So you're basically spending the entire time liquid couraged. It is perfect. It is just a fun, fun funnel. Weird frontiers. I get to use being one of the old pueblos of the Anastasia of the West. One of the reasons the Anastasia vanished. Maybe it Could is be the Anastasia. Yeah. Ooh. And of course, anything with wandering heroes, Lankmar would fit this. It would be something that any party traveling through Nerwan could come across the stone village with these things. If you really want to give your characters a nice little between adventures as they're going from Ooh. one place to another. And then they come across this. Yeah. That's a different world bubble. <laughs> That's very true. And Bob? Well, you know, first of all, I started thinking that with just a little bit of effort, you could fit this into the Dying Earth setting. Of course, you know, that's where our brains have been recently, right? But, uh, you know, the whole ancient civilization and the old stone dwellings that everyone avoids could easily, easily be reskinned into the Dying Earth. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's why Amperdatvir is empty. Yeah. And then I started thinking, you just like showing off that you could say that, don't you? Uh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> You could always convert sailors on a starless sea to vampires under a sunless sky. You know, you've got, again, the nearby village, the locale where the villagers fear to tread, where people disappear to and things come from. Only if we get to have some different mutations for each of the vampires, the way that we have that table to make up the beastmen. Oh, that would be fun. Well, you know, there, there are two entire tables in the DCC core book about adding flavor to your undead. So, so mm-hmm. that might be a little odd for record keeping for a judge, but hey, you know what? If we're writing it, we don't necessarily have to run. So, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> digging way back into the long, long ago, keeping that theme of villages with something dangerous nearby. How about the treacherous cob traps? Oh, wow, that's been an age. It is, and it's it's an adventure that a lot of people have a problem sourcing just because it's from Brave Halfling. Yes, and Brave Halfling is no longer shipping anything they've stated they've shipped out well they they've stated they shipped out everything which we know they haven't but there's nothing more forthcoming so Uh if you can find it it is definitely worth picking up the brave halfling materials were really good they were a lot of fun they were well written there were just problems with the kickstarter and 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 some of my first road crew games yeah and uh and and then like jen kingdoms of africa there's just because right i mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when when you start when you start thinking about role playing games as a genre, and when you start reading about kids aren't just playing D and D in Africa, they've been doing things like LARPing Nyambi, the third ed African oh, wow. setting that was the real mythic Africa as opposed to you know Appendix N's Tarzan's Africa. And so there's people out there who are taking these ideas and they're making them more authentic and they're creating more. And so when Kingdoms of Africa came around, it was like, yes, I'm working with you know artists and writers in Nigeria. I was very, very excited about the product. So and Ed Sanic is also very open to feedback. When they released the first PDF of this, there was some conversation from other judges about the way patrons were written up and how they didn't feel complete. And this was before publication. And within three days, that had all been fleshed out and relayed out, and the the edited file was available. Wow. So wow. this is... 
Yeah, Ed is a stand-up guy. Well, it's yeah. not just that. Ed does not fall into the trap that so many people can fall into when they're creating gaming material, which is ego, right? Your 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 customer is either the person yeah. is always the person you're writing for, whether you're writing for another company or you're writing for people to run it. Those are the people you're writing for. It's not about you. It's about them. And he is just so embracing of feedback. That was really pleasant. And it's time for us to wax poetic about another author, because that's going to bring us to our DCC feature for this show, which is DCC number 93, Moon Slaves of the Cannibal Kingdom by Edgar D. Johnson. Far to the west, beyond civilized lands, lie the Tolomac Islands. Volcanic peaks covered in pestilential jungle and bestriding sunken ruins. The legends say the Ptolemaics are home to treacherous witches, ferocious cannibals, moon demons, and worse. Wise are those who steer well away from these accursed jungled isles, but not everyone is wise. For the legends also speak of power unimaginable and treasures beyond the limits of mortal avarice. Now, under the light of the triple moons, a band of intrepid adventurers sails even nearer to the islands. With luck, they will escape with a fortune. Without it, they may not keep their souls. Ooh. You've never yeah. run this for me. Yeah, you're right. So I had to read it and spoil it. You've never run it for me. Yeah, yeah. Same, same thing here. I've neither run this nor played in it but when i picked it up the first thing doug kovacs is art on the cover mm, talk about a cover that grabs you by the face and screams hang on tight <laughs> i love the representation yeah because it's not just another you know group of pasty faced fighters really <laughs> yeah yeah you've got a dwarf there but you've got a, a woman of color who's obviously very powerful and isn't shanna right which surprised me even further i'm really digging it yeah, this cover just screams like the old appendix and pulp covers. Mm -hmm. Everything about this just makes you want to pick up and take a look at it. The, yeah, the title, the cover, and everything inside screams weird tales. Yeah, it yeah. It really does. Yeah. And I, I just want to add that calling this an adventure is really selling it short. With just a little bit of work, this is a mini campaign setting. And it's oh. as rich and varied as a number of things that I've seen promoted as campaign settings for other game systems. So it's not just a module. Anybody saying that is is definitely doing it an injustice. Well, and Edgar's no slouch. Mm -hmm. His first release for Goodman Games was against the Atomic Overlord, which is level five adventure and skirts the DCC MCC line mm -hmm. there. So the fact that he's the author of this particular piece does not surprise me at all. But I also have to say with the setup, anyone who enjoyed Intrigue at the Court of Chaos will appreciate the various NPCs at play. Hmm. Yeah, you could spend hours on any one of the islands in this. In terms of maps and everything, it's got a lot packed into only like 25 pages. Mm -hmm. But you take a look at it, it is not a, like you said earlier, this is not, this is not just a module. This is... This is something that a judge who prepares can just blow this thing away. There's just so much in it. So many things. I mean, it's got everything you could want in an adventure. Prehistoric creatures, killer plants, mega-sized animals. You've not blown that. You can actually see that from the cover. You've got giant animals. It's got everything, including, as the name implies, cannibals and blood drinkers. 
Which, there you are. There's your vampires, right? Yeah, there's the vampires right there. It even has a mini bestiary at the back, which I thought, well, which which doesn't include everything that was in there, really, but it's got a few of the key points right in the back. Right, you could almost do it as just a hex crawl slash sandbox. Oh, most certainly. There is enough material in this. This is not something that you drop your players in and have them play like one or two sessions and you're done. This is something that you can drop them in and they can wander for a while because beyond the adventure portion itself, there are so many hooks and hints and things that you you can get months of play out of this thing. It is slated as a level two adventure, but I think if you were to start them at level one, say coming out of sailors on the ship, start it at level one, just drop some of the attacks and hit dice for you know, some of your critters and let them RP their way through it. Basically, they're they're sailing up to what two islands with something mysterious between them. And if they have anybody with nautical know-how on board, the planned route should probably be different than the one that they're thinking of. But there are so many possibilities and they give you a player's map, which I think is really cool because it also shows the topography. And as a player, I think the last time I got something this detailed was in something set in the Swordfish Islands. Yeah. And of course it's a Doug Kovacs map. So it's just worth looking at just for that alone with the, <laughs> with, with all of the little Kovacsian marginalia and all that on this thing. It's just phenomenal. And so, so Ooh, good vocabulary. <laughs> I love that word. Thank you. I've been brushing up on my Jack Vance, so I'm trying to push that vocabulary out. And just speaking of all the other interior art from this, from McGosland, Pogue, the late Jim Holloway, it is all just adds to this. Oh, it is packed. It really is packed with content. I think we're being very careful to not give away too many of the details here. We were talking about Kingdoms of Africa. And you could easily reskin this and drop this into Kingdoms of Africa without much of an issue. And so you know, the, the fact that two products separated by a number of years really would work so well together yeah, really, That's- really speaks for the, the overall flexibility of the DCC aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. I love the fact that in the middle of this, he says, here are some adventures you can run in the middle of this. Yeah. You brought up ego before. It's like Edgar Johnson is so non-ego. He lists, but I think at least seven or eight adventures. I didn't get an exact count. But it's you, like, don't you love it when the game designer's like, "Oh, and this guy's stuff is cool, and this guy's stuff is cool, and yeah, oh, and you, you got to play this guy's stuff." Right? It's, yeah. it's 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 very Edgar. Yeah, and you can run that right smack dab in the middle of this. So, it, so it's an adventure that leads you to more adventures when they're trying to explore that maze of sunken ruins. The adventure portion of this is not something that should be rushed through or hurried through. You can, you can pace it out and spread it out with other things. So this would almost fall into the category of a setting as opposed to just a module. I I think it's gotten a bad rap. People look at it and they're like, okay, it, it's a, an adventure with a giant ape. Okay, whatever. Um, no, don't judge this one quite by the cover that much. Yeah. Normally, when people talk about island hex crawls or jungle hex crawls, I go immediately to the Swordfish Island setting, which is system neutral. But Jeff Seifert has 
wonderfully given us stats for every single one of those critters. Oh, wow. But I would also go to the Treasure Vaults of Zadabad mm-hmm. uh, from Stormlord Publishing for the hex crawl aspect. The difference between this and Zadabad Island are the fact that this particular module is the flavor is pulled directly from Appendix N. And you can tell Stormlords are, are no slouches. And I, I mean no ill will when I say this, but Edgar loves his Appendix N. And if he wants to write something based on it, it's going to be evocative. It's going to be more than just, you know, the occasional joke. Also, if you're yeah. going to bring up uh, Treasure Vaults of Zadabad. I should put in parentheses by joke. I just mean um, one particular vault is a direct nod to Bruce the Chin. I was just going to, to mention, if you're going to bring up uh, Treasure Vaults of, of uh, Zadabad, we even were gifted an additional supplement, right? An additional tomb, the tomb of Comet, which we published in, I want to say, Companion 20 that Eric Hoffman and Carl Bustler donated to the Sanctum. So so if you're going to tie this into that, there's even more content out there. Those gentlemen made available for free through us, which was very kind of them. So there's there's even more out there. Yeah, so I would definitely put that in the list of, hey, you can play with these things in the middle of. Yeah. But I, I think for the overall setting... I need to start putting this title at the head of my list instead of the previous mention, because those would more fit into the Cannibal Kingdom. Yeah, the the Cannibal Kingdom has so much stuff you can fit in there. What I love about this is that although there's script to be read, so much of it is agency of judges and players. Mm-hmm. How they play this, it, all that is like hints of how things will go. And there's so much that, that this can spiral in this thing. You don't feel like you're being point A to point B to point C in this. It's it's so wonderfully free-flowing. Now, as as a bit of a warning, as we are waxing poetic about it, because it is a great setting and adventure, it is something that, as a judge, you do not want to pick up and run unprepared. You really, this is something you really need to read and look through it. Otherwise, you'll still have fun. Right? You could you could just crawl through the adventure portion of it and have a good time, but you are not. You're you're going to miss out on so much. You're not going to get the fullness of everything that's there unless you really take the time to prepare but it will pay off and be worth it. Oh, absolutely. The judge has to have his act together for this one. Yeah, you can't just, well, I'll run this. There is, but like you said, the prep work for this will so return everything. Yeah, I mean, you don't just get these really flavorful NPCs. You get a list of who everybody is and a little bit of background on them. And then you get, this is what the attitude towards the party will be when initially met. But depending on certain factors, this might be how she replies to them afterwards. This is the job she's been given. This is her location. This is her motivation. This is her fatal flaw. And these are her allies and then her minions. And you get almost a full write-up, like a patron write-up almost, on each NPC before they're ever encountered. And so if you're not prepared and you just try to run some random encounters for them it might go sideways for you as a judge you you might end up in that awkward position of 
All right. Can we take like a 15 minute break? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you are into the role playing game to role play and you love judging the role play, this is the one you need to do because you can role play like 18 different characters, 18 different ways. Definitely. Definitely. And if the role play isn't really your thing, but you think your players might enjoy it, let them play amongst themselves. You know, the NPCs can kind of take a back seat. There's still a lot here to be explored, but I do think Strava is my favorite. Hmm. Just throwing that out there. So I think the underlying message here is that Doug rocks, Edgar's awesome, and this module is deceptively deep. Yes, this is not 19 pages of text module. This is your toe in the water. This is where you start and go, because Edgar's a genius. Yeah, pretty much. So... As we start the wrap-up portion of this particular show, I noticed that we actually have an email. Oh my wow. God, to awaken the email beast. Email? Um, Bob, I don't even know what to do with this anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, well, we used to. Uh, do, we, do we file it under E it? for email, M for mail, um, R for reader content, L for listener. Con- I, I, I don't. Maybe we should just read it on air and, and reply to it. What do you think? What do you think, Eric? I think we have to do that. We should do it. absolutely. Yours. All right. So it's Eric's fault, Jen. Yep, I'll take the hit. Sanctum meritus ones. It begins. I'm loving the podcast. Boc fan here. What are the odds you could cover Tanith Lee's Knights Master or one of the other Tales of the Flat Earth? Those books hit me in junior high and formed a big part of my fantasy sensibilities to this day. They are dark, lush, and weird as hell. Ooh. Keep up the great podcast, JV West. Ooh. Oh, hey. Tanith Lee, I'm a huge. Okay, I'm glad I read it then. Huge <laughs> Tanith Lee fan. Um, we. It's definitely appendix and adjacent, right? Much like a few of the other authors who don't get credited, Tanith Lee certainly qualifies. Uh, wow. Clark Ashton Smith. Right. <laughs> As opposed to B-O-C-C-A-S. Yeah. You know, I, I would say there is there is uh, good odds that we could cover Tanith Lee's Knight's Master. And, you know, while we're doing several shows with guest hosts, Mr. West, why don't you just reach out to us again and maybe we can see about uh, scheduling having you on to talk about this, one of your favorite stories. Ooh. Oh, that would be cool. Any excuse to get J.V. West on the show will work for me. <laughs> you you just want him to illustrate something for the zine. Well, now I do. I hadn't thought about that, but now I do. Oh my God. I want, These are not mutual. I just want to get him on the right? show. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm a huge fan of Tanith Lee, and I think that'd be a, a really nice fitting choice. And I'm looking for something to read because I'm like 20 pages away from finishing the Dying Earth trilogy. Yeah, the 700 page monster. Four, so, you know, yeah, if you're no. a trilogy, yeah. maybe, you've the got 16. another book. <laughs> okay. Well, the that's... Tales of the Dying Earth. And then okay, actually, yeah, the when you finish Earth. that, then you can still read Songs of the Dying Earth. And then there's the two the two uh, like, pieces okay, by yeah, Michael no Shea. <laughs> yeah. Well, those aren't, none of those are advanced, though. Or I just, or I just go for the complete 62 volume set. <laughs> you're going to need a bigger house. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> But I, I keep I looking at my bookshelves going, okay, so if we knock the ceiling out and build higher. Yeah. Um, the library overfloweth, but, you know, those are problems to have. Yeah, those are good problems to have when you don't have enough space for books. 
that's a good problem to have. Yeah, the the <laughs> library is overflowing, and uh, something else that is overflowing is the prize closet of mystery. So you have been waiting all. I, well, you know, you I, know I think uh, <laughs> I, I think it's about. It. About time that we run another contest. I just don't know what yet. So if any uh, if any listeners have any thoughts, uh, send those on in because we we got the prize closet of mystery is rapidly becoming the what? prize guest bedroom of mystery, <laughs> and uh, and so uh, it's sad because it's so, true. So really, yeah, we need to run some more contests. Also, a nice problem to have. Yeah. In the meantime, if you would like to see your creation. In the DCC community's only free periodic easing, and you didn't make it into the Gong Farmer's Almanac, keep an eye out for our future topics. As a big hint, they are announced with each zine, and we can include your material in the show companions. And honestly, we'd love to see what sort of things you have created based on your appendix and readings. We'd love to hear how you've used the ideas we've been discussing at your table. If you have a favorite spell or companion or a favorite monster from Appendix and Nightmares or any of our previous releases, let us know. We'd love to build on those as well. And if you are enjoying the show or any of its iterations like the Sanctum Secorum Reading Room or Sanctum Secorum Live, please comment directly on the podcast or help us by posting a review on iTunes or DriveThruRPG for you zine fans. Because those ratings and reviews do help new listeners find the podcast and the community as a whole. Of course, be sure to drop us an email at thehub at sanctum.media. Follow us on Twitter, mention us on Facebook, wake us up on MeWe, and still ignore us on LO. So bad every time. And finally, a huge thank you to our special guest and host for this episode, Judge Eric. Oh, it's just so much fun. Thank you. Do you have any last bits of advice or inspiration for us? Just go for it. There, there's a spot for you out there somewhere. Whatever your thoughts are, you want, you've never run a game and think you can, go for it. There are enough people out there that will help you out. I mean, a year and a half ago, I was just a guy playing games. And now look at you. You're a guy making yeah. sure that other people can play games while manhandling, what, a thousand pages of Gong Farmers at this point? That's it. Like yeah, 2000. That. Is, it, is it the Gong Farmers like phone book at this point? Because that thing's getting pretty big. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's it. Last I checked, we had like over thirty contributors, at least more Oof. than that. <laughs> yeah, there you have it. We hope we've inspired you for something other than overflowing libraries. Although that's not a bad thing either. And thanks for listening. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum podcast. The Sanctum Secorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2021.